Welcome to the Colors of Fatherhood podcast. Here, we shine a positive light on fathers of color and seek out their stories of trial and triumph while gaining insight on what it means to raise children in this country we call America. A quote from Dr. Franklin Pittman states, Fathering is not something perfect men do, but something that perfects the man. And now, your illustrious host, Lim Gonsalves. What's good, everybody? It's your boy, Lim Gonsalves, a.k.a. Saint, and this is the Colors of Fatherhood podcast. So as I always say, I have to have amazing guests, and today is no exception. He is a poet. He is an author. He is an actor. He's a father of two, and he's amazing at it. That's why he's on this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Carlos Andres Gomez. (laughs) Hey, Lem, it's great to be here. I love this. I love what you're doing with this podcast, and looking forward to, to talking with you. Yeah, man. Likewise. Likewise. We was catch up a little bit, just um, comparing notes, but it's really good to see you. It's really good to, to, I mean, the, the audience can't see you. It's audio, but um, I can see you and you're looking great. Um, but yeah, man, it, it's really, we've been talking about the whole Kate Verdian thing, which is outstanding and you're aware. And so that's really dope. You know, that's close to home, but yeah, man, you're a dad. That's amazing. First question I typically ask all my guests is, how did your life change when you first became a father? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely becoming a parent is the biggest seismic shift of my life. My whole life, I wanted to be a father. I knew that I wanted to be a father. and mm-hmm. But, you know, for many years, I was concerned or worried that I would become a father at a time when I wasn't ready or wasn't planning to be a father. So I was very grateful and feel very grateful that I got, you know, I've been able to have two kids with, you know, someone that I, I love and built that I'm building a life with. And they're both very much like wanted and, and, and came at that time where things were as lined up as I guess they could be. But yeah, it, it was a seismic shift for me. I mean, I think becoming a father, there were the way I describe it to my best friend is um, he, he's not a parent, but we were, I was talking about how, and this could be as an artist or um, as a person, Sure. I think there were moments in my life where I was kind of, I may have felt a little bit restless or anchorless, or you kind of have that sort of like feverish energy that would carry me across days at, at, at times where I didn't really know where my point of focus was. Mm. And I think particularly for someone like me who, you know, I know you, Lem, you do a lot of different things creatively, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I operate in a lot of different creative realms. And so I think my energy was not... Like it was difficult to pull it into alignment, I think, because I don't know that I had that anchor point. And I think the moment I became a father, the most important job I will ever have in my life, the most important legacy that I will ever leave, everything is connected and, and through the prism of fatherhood. Mm. And so I think the moment, you know, I held my old, eldest child, Grace, for the first time, you know, I knew that she was the reason that I was I was put on this earth and everything that I was doing was beginning with her and ending with her. <laughs> mm. And now that I have, we have another child too. So I think for me, it clarified and anchored the purpose of my life. And in some ways it, it completely calmed a lot of that restlessness, a lot of the scattered energy that I think mm. plagued me at points before I became a parent. Whereas now, you know, I know, and I think particularly now having me a, been a parent during a pandemic for two years and, right. you know, home with my kids for 14 months, 
the daycare for our son for 14 months. You know, it's <laughs> like, I know what the focus of my life is. I can't say that I knew it with that clarity before I became a parent or, or certainly not with the same kind of intensity. Like, mm. I know what I'm trying to do with my art, but right. this is on a different scale. It's interesting you bring the artists. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of artists on this podcast. A lot of them have talked. One in particular, um, I remember uh, his name is Jeremy Passion. He's a singer. And he was talking about when he first had his son. And obviously, you know, when you're touring and that's your livelihood, you know, you write poems as you are a poet uh, or you write songs. They're your babies, kind of, in a sense. But it's not the same as when you have an actual child and it's like how that immediately takes precedence because that's who you're now doing this all for where before you were just doing it for yourself or you know for those that you you know cared about or what have you but it's like the central focus is that something that happens immediately yeah i mean i and i know i i'd I'd read about this and and heard people say this before the moment I held our child for the first time after she was born. I mean, I, I agree with the, the cliches. I mean, there, there's there's no way to be prepared to be a parent. There mm. are things you can do to ready yourself as much as possible, but there's right. no there's no like point at which you're prepared. I mean, it's mm-hmm. impossible. And also another thing people would say is, you know, they say, no matter how much you think you've conceived of this idea that you are a parent, until that child is handed to you and you realize that like, so now we're going to go home with this child and just good luck. You're like, right. wow, really? I can just take this baby. Just We just go? Yeah, that's it. Now it's, you know. And I think, like no instructions? Um, yeah, exactly. You know, I think I think that the um, just that visceral urgency and intensity of all the emotions you're feeling to be in that mm. moment mm-hmm. where you suddenly are, are taking in this human that's taking you in with such intense vulnerability too, you know, like a few seconds old and, and realizing that, you know, this is, this is what my, 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 my life is, you know, this, <laughs> this is, is this is what, yeah, this is it, you know? And um, I don't know, it's, it's something that, uh, you know, as someone who tries to find words to convey the unsayable or the unspeakable at times, I mean, mm-hmm. I'll never adequately find words to describe Definitely what that initial encounter felt like, but right. uh, just trying to c- capture the the intensity and the scale of what that is. You know, I don't, I'm not a dad. I've said this uh, umpteen times on this podcast, but yeah. that's something to definitely look forward to because, and I know people and, and you were talking about it. I've had other men when they're talking about having their child for the first time and how, especially, and these are people that are great with words. And it's like, yeah. I can't, you know, think of, a way to describe the feeling or describe the love that I have for this person that I just met that I want to give all to, and I would die for essentially. Um, And it's just interesting being immersed in that and have that feeling just being over on. It sounds really dope. It sounds, sounds super, super (laughs) dope. And I'm just like, man, I see it on your face. You know what I mean? And so it's just literally having that when you were growing up, could you imagine that happening? Like, what was your life like, you know, with your own family? And and how did that, yeah. um, did that differ from, you know, what, what you have now with your family? Or was it the same? How did that operate? I mean, there, there, are, there are a lot of beautiful qualities from my father that I think I've tried to emulate as a parent now. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that I certainly don't want to emulate. <laughs> um, and I also think you know, I mean, it's interesting because my father actually he traveled a lot when I was younger. He mm. uh, he worked for the United Nations 
So he traveled oh, really? all the time. Yeah. Um, he traveled a lot and doing really important work and he was gone a lot, you know, mm. the most powerful lesson that I think I've taken from just like watching my, my father's growth over the time that I've known him, which is actually not the full snapshot. It's not, it's not a snapshot of his whole life. You know, mm. it's just, it's just most of his life, I guess, or, or part of his life. My parents got divorced when I was, uh, you know, 14 mm-hmm. and my dad got remarried and had twins with his second wife. And so my little brother, I have a twin little brother and sister that are a lot younger than me. I think being able to compare the way he was a father this after he got married the second time and also the way he was a spouse and a husband with the second time that he was married versus mm-hmm. with us, I think is really powerful and instructive to me because, you know, there's so many days, I mean, as a parent, I mean, it's, you can describe it, but it's a whole different thing. And, and with this pandemic, it's been like a whole nother thing, but it's just like, it just never stops. You know what I mean? Like right. you think of your most vulnerable moments when you got nothing left mm-hmm. and your kid will feel that mm-hmm. and they will, and they will project back with exponential magnitude. However, you feel like you're not at your best. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> they're a small human that are wholly dependent on you and less so over right. time, hopefully. Right. But it's just like, yeah, it's, it's just learning to give myself the grace and the possibility for growth every day and mm-hmm. treating every day anew. I think the, possi- the, the, the possibility and the growth of my dad's life is something that I continually use to inspire me because mm-hmm. my dad and I had, after my parents got divorced, we had about a decade where we had a very, very strained relationship and things mm-hmm. were not great at all. And it could, it could have gone many different ways. You know, during that time, I like, you know, several things happened. I like wrote a play. I wrote a memoir about this relationship. Oh, wow. you know, I wrote a lot of other work, you know, and, and those things and went to therapy and a lot of things helped me work through it. But yeah, I think just seeing the ways that my dad has grown, I think is a constant reminder to me that I always have to be auditing and finding further possibilities for growth. Cause like when my dad was with, you know, with my mom before they got divorced and was with us, you know, it was a very, patriarchal construct in our home. Mm, you know what I mean? Mm. Like there are a lot of things that I think in terms of the, the, the roles and the gender dynamics and the power balance in the family was, was like profoundly inequitable and unhealthy. I see the way it is in his second family and he's grown so immensely. I mean, it, it's completely different. It's like night and day. And that's something that I'm always thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about like, what is the, what are the roles that I'm modeling in our house for mm-hmm. our kids? You know, wherever on the gender continuum they evolve into as they grow older and like and who and and the people that they're going to be partnered with, what kind of balance, how equitable is my partnership with my wife? You know what I mean? And and what do they learn from that and the way that I talk to her and the way I talk to them and the way I treat them? So I think about that constantly. And I and and again, I guess just the, the flyover, the high level is just I say in a poem, I say, you know, I've never met anybody in my life who's grown as much over three decades as my father, Hmm. you know? And so I think it's a reminder to me, you know, I think a lot of my work centers around my artistic work, which is an extension of my personal work is centered around in short kind of being somebody who got, get, got a lot of things wrong or is Mm -hmm. constantly like not getting things right, but growing and trying to find ways to evolve and be better and finding the grace and the possibility to embrace that. There's no better opportunity for that than uh, as a father, because it is the most humbling, challenging, joyful, and rewarding thing I have ever done and will ever do. <laughs> mm, that's amazing. 
Is there a sense of, because you know, you said there was a, there's definitely different from how he's raised his, uh, your younger siblings, as yeah. opposed to when you were raised, you said it was a very patriarchal situation. Is there any sense of a resentment as a result of that? Or do you just take it in stride and say like, oh, okay, that's what they received. And as a poet, and you're able to emulate this and know how to utilize this for your family and what to do and maybe what not to do. You know, maybe this is tempered by the distance between me and my younger siblings. Like we have a pretty big age gap, mm-hmm. but um, I don't, I don't feel any resentment at all. I just mm. feel genuinely inspired mm. by it and extremely grateful just to bear witness to that growth and also to see them receive that like 2.0 version of him, Got you know? And, and also let me, be, let me be clear too. I mean, I think to say that things were sort of patriarchal in terms of their organization in my house that's not to say that he wasn't a really great father and it right. was and it also what is not to say that there are a lot of things that I still take from him like he was I mean he's always been extremely generous he's mm-hmm. always been very affectionate he was always somebody in this land that I emulate like he'd get back from a trip he'd be jet lagged he'd be exhausted and he'd be ready to like play soccer in the yard or like play one-on-one basketball or like spend time together or like Uh go do something. Even if he was like falling asleep, he'd be like ready to spend time together. And, Uh and you know, that's what I think about every time I I get back from touring and I come back, I never am taking a nap. I'm always like the minute I walk in the door, I like wash my hands, change my clothes. I'm like, boom, tell my wife to go chill and I'll go get the kids and just go hang out. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, I think, you know, even the time, you know, he, he traveled a lot again for like really important, meaningful work. And, Maybe he could have had a better balance of that mm-hmm. at times, but when he was there, he was there and he was, he was showing up and he was present and he was like, he was there for us, you know? So right. in the ways that he may have failed in terms of modeling roles, in terms of, I think, being a more radical model of what a father can look like in terms of showing up for their kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, he showed up in other ways, in other ways he was, right. he, he was, he was amazing. So Again, I can't, you can't, I can't paint it with just like one broad brushstroke, but you know, I say this when I talk to, you know, I do workshops with young people and I always say, you know, like the, the, the incredible gift of your life. And I look at each of them as I say, you know, you are going to ultimately decide like what the future is. Mm. You're going to get to determine what traditions we carry forward and what traditions we let die Mm. and please choose wisely and choose with intention. Right. Because there are a lot of things, and I say this a lot when I'm talking about culture and, and I'm, you know, I'm Colombian, I'm very proud of being Colombian, but I say there's so many things I love about Colombia and like my culture and my family. And there are a lot of things I absolutely detest and I'm not going to continue. Hmm. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, I think, and so I think, you know, let, you know, that that's to me like growing up and being a, and being an adult and being a self-directed adult with their own sovereignty is saying, these are the things I want to continue. These are the things I I don't want to continue. Hmm. And there's no higher stakes than when your kid is watching you. And that's what with my kids, you know, nothing is ever off limits to talk about. I'll talk to them about anything. And obviously it'll be age appropriate so they can understand it and they can receive it. But I'm always like, you know, I think about all the ways my parents, I think, failed me in some of those tougher, higher stakes conversations. In ways mm. that I think all parents, I'm sure I've failed many times, but right. like I always think as much as I can with and be as deliberate as possible, say we're we're going to have those hard conversations. And I'm not going to be afraid of them, mm-hmm. um, and and they might it might be imperfect, but we're going to have those conversations, and and we're going to build a habit and a precedent of engaging in that way because I want you to enter the world like fully formed adults, yes. you know, not just physically but emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, <laughs> you know, all of the above, all of the above. 
That's amazing. And and you you kind of helped me segue into talking about, you know, your profession and being an artist and a full-time artist and traveling and and things of that nature. How does that work? I know some of the pandemic you were talking about being home a lot more than ever, you know, probably before. Yeah. Uh, in your career. Yeah. But how does how do you divide the time specifically because I know, you know, parents that are artists, um you have it's a juggling act, you know, because you're on the road <laughs> You're on the road for, you know, could be weeks at a time, you know, what have you, you come home and you want to spend that time, but you know that you still have your career that you have to do in order to, you know, to put food on the table, to give them a roof over their head, all of these things. How do you find time to juggle that? Like, how do you work that out within the schedules? Yeah, it, it, it's really tough. I mean, there are a lot of things that are just things I've evolved into over the years and also just things that I'm lucky because of how our family is is kind of structured. I mean, mm. I mean, one thing is, I mean, I've been touring at this point for, for more than 20 years. So like there are things that I've kind of, at this point, <clears throat> I, I think I've perfected or not necessarily perfected, but I've, I start to, to work smarter and better and more efficiently with mm-hmm. or certain things, you know, it's like you, you know, like any touring artist knows this, like there are things that are, that have such high value, you're less concerned about the cost. And that's, that's a cost benefit that's constantly happening. You know what I mean? It's like, what are the things that are high value items that have to be prioritized no matter what? And what are the things that maybe I overvalue that are not quite as valuable and mean less? And so mm. for me, I, I think I really work really hard to like concentrate my touring in really intensive stretches. That's, that's one of the things I do, right? So, so I mean, you know, if I was to give a, 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 a typical non-pandemic year, I'd say, you know, September, October, and half of November, I'm extremely busy. You know, March and April, I'm very busy. The other months, I try very hard to be much lower intensity and not very busy at all. Mm. Of course, if a big gig comes up, you're going to take it. Of course, sure. you know, a big opportunity. You Absolutely. If you have a project you're working on, if you're doing a show, but it, they're all different types of things that can happen, of course. Right. And, and we're operating a lot of creative realms. Like that, that's always things that I'm, I'm navigating. But but as a touring artist, which is like the primary way that, you know, I, my career is sort of centered around, I think doing it in those, those focused intensive stretches and having my agents know, like you push everything into those narrow windows, I think has allowed me to work better and more efficiently where mm-hmm. I'll make more money than I did in the past, but I'll do it in probably at least half the time. Ah, gotcha. And I think that's, that's just because I do it more intensively. An- <clears throat> another thing that I do is I make sure I'm not gone for weeks at a time because I, I, I see like the kind of emotional, spiritual toll it takes on the family. And so I will come back even if it's for one night and I fly back from Seattle and then I'm going to LA. You mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, which may be hard on my body, but even just having that moment where I check in, I try to, you know, in general, I try to make it as as little as possible that I'm away, but like we kind of have like a 10 day rule, right? So like, we got to find a spare day in those 10 days to come back before mm-hmm. I go out again. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Even yes. if it's in one of those narrow windows, that's not always the case, but I think pretty much since my kids have been alive, I've never broken that, that 10 day rule. I think just those little things like that. Another thing, my, my, my wife has like a, a traditional job. So, mm-hmm. you know, she has, she has a situation where there's kind of a built in structure and stability to her, to her career. And we also, you know, have support of like family and friends and things like that. So there's structures in place. I think that allow us to do everything in a way that's more 
more efficient and thoughtful and cohesive. But right. for those things, we definitely had to like a lot of trial and error to kind of get sure. Things. No, I can imagine. I mean, yeah, you just like over 20 years and then trying to, you know, figure out which way is going to be best uh, to kind of manufacture. How old are your children? Uh, six and three. Oh, six and three. Okay. So yeah. trying to navigate that um, from what would have been probably 15 years, just kind of doing yeah. this, <laughs> you know, still, yeah. you know, being in a relationship, but not having children, which is a different situation. Yeah. And then going yeah. into like, oh, how do I conform this? How do I make this work? Exactly. So exactly. I, that's definitely, that's definitely a lot. That's definitely a lot of work. But I think when you say you, that, that 10 day rule is great. I mean, to have that, because like you say, you, all this time, you haven't missed it and it just helps to have the balance. I would feel, I would think just that there's a, a constant balance when it comes to your children, um, because obviously they need that in growing up and having that. And of course, you know, your wife having, like you said, a traditional job. So she's a constant there and you're there and make sure as much as you can and, and kind of differentiate. Do you think that it's important to have essentially when you talk about like, you know, being a father, having children, uh, being a constant in our lives, do you think it's important to, to carry on certain traditions or do you think, do you think that that's not as important? Yeah, no, I, I love doing, tra- I mean, I'll, I'll just say this. I think there is something, I have a much greater appreciation, I think, as a parent now, the need for these, you know, like building in traditions, building in rituals, I think that mark the passage of time or, or mark certain moments that are that are significant. I think I didn't really have much respect for them when I was growing up. Maybe uh. it's because I'm like ir- irreverent in the, uh, <laughs> intuitively. Gotcha. <laughs> you know, yeah, or, or a nonconformist. But yeah, I mean, I think some traditions that we've like created, you know what I mean? Like I'll mm-hmm. give you one, you know, like every night at dinner, we name, we each name five gratitudes, five things really? we're grateful for. And that's just something that, you know, it's just like a family tradition. It's not something I ever did. It's not mm-hmm. something my wife ever did growing up. But, um, you know, just like building in these little, these little things that we, that we do that I think are our own kind of traditions yeah, I mean, so, so I think that there is, I think there is a real like value there in something that I, mm-hmm. and maybe this, is my, you know, my parents would, would have an issue with this, but I think my wife and I are bigger on kind of building in and making our own some of these traditions and rituals mm-hmm. that might be things we've come up with ourself, ourselves, or they might be things that we adapted from other traditions we saw. Um, I think in the era that I grew up, maybe this is similar to you, it's like, I think a lot of the traditions we had were just like, oh yeah, my parents did this, so I'm just going to do this too. Right. <laughs> do you know oh, what I mean? Yes. Like, yeah. Like, yes. Like, like we go we go to church on Easter Sunday because that's right. what people do that are right. Christian. <laughs> you know, whatever. It's like I don't know if I want to do this, but I just mm-hmm. do it. You know what you I mean? You just do it just because. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's not a, uh, a critique of my parents. It's just you know, it's it's a different era, perhaps. You know, but right. I I know exactly what you're talking about. What I've noticed is you know parents now that are having children that are. Probably, you know, from like maybe preteen on down, I know that they've they've done that as well. They've adopted certain things that they want to do, still holding on to, you know, what they've, you know, grown up and manifested in, but also incorporating new things for their own family structure that works for them. And I think that's wildly important. When you talk about also culture, I know you said you mentioned being Colombian. How important is that in, in making sure that your children are immersed in the culture that you grew up uh, with and are part of? Yeah, I mean, culture culture, ethnicity, race, identity are, are something we think about all the time in our house. And there's something that's, that's very important, you know, like both of our kids are in like uh, Spanish immersion 
program, our youngest in, in daycare and our our eldest in, in school. Wait, so, they have immersion um, programs in daycare? Mm-hmm. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Not at the one where my son goes, but another one they um, have. Uh, I mean, we're actually, where we used to live in Queens, they had immersion in uh, uh, Mandarin, Korean. Um, that's Queens, you know, so Mandarin, right. Korean, Hebrew, Arabic, Spanish, and English. And this is in daycare. At different places. Yeah, this is in daycare. Wow. Wow. Okay. Uh That's one angle. I mean, I think we're very straightforward about telling our kids about their ancestry and and who they are and the people that have come before. My wife is is Black American, so from a very proud Black Southern family. So, Mm. you know, like those roots are something that we talk about a lot. And, you know, I think, you know, my my parents didn't, didn't always do a great job about when it came to talking about identity, about any identities, really. Oh, really? And that's something that um, we're very intentional about in mm. thinking about all the different identities they carry, you know, and, and trying to make sure that as they grow up, they have complex, humane, and deepened understandings when they think about other identities, whether it's mm. sexuality or gender or religion mm-hmm. or class or, or, or anything, you know? So mm-hmm. that's a really important part of being a parent for me because I think it has such an impact on how, on how we view ourselves, mm. you know, like the narratives and the stories and the language you learn around your own identities have a big impact on how you conceive of yourself. And so I right. take that responsibility very, very seriously. And I think our, our kids being like of mixed ethnicity and mixed race and mm-hmm. all this other stuff, they're things that easily could be swept under the rug or a parent could not discuss like colorism, which we talk about all the time, mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. that I think can be really treacherous as they grow older Yes, um, and, and would be treacherous now. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so we live close to our, my brother and sister-in-law and our, and, and, and their the cousins, right? They're two mm-hmm. nephews. You know, I, the conversation I have with my brother and sister-in-law and we, you know, we always are always are talking about colorism and saying, you know, listen, your blackness is not defined by, the shade of your brown skin, (laughs) you know, Hmm. Uh, you are not more beautiful because you are lighter. Hmm. You are not more whatever. This is, we don't say this to our kids, but I'm already knowing the conversations that are happening in the histories attached to like, you know, sort of colorist narratives over time. But, you know, like, I think we talk a lot about thinking about diaspora in complex ways. Mm-hmm. whatever diaspora we're talking about. You know sure, what I mean? Sure. And also I always am, am constantly enforcing, like when we think about identity, I'm somebody who thinks about it as an and, not an or. Mm-hmm. And we live in a country that loves or, but but rarely wants to really hold space for and. You yes. know what I mean? Yes, and I think that that's a powerful so model. I think it's a powerful model too that, that I think is also teaching them to think about as they grow and evolve with their gender and with their sexuality. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. People are saying, are you attracted to this or are you attracted to that? It's like, well, why don't we just chill out and just find out what you're attracted to? You know? <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, it's something that, um, you know, I, I feel very blessed that we're in the school that they go to and the community that we're in. Yes. Yes. Is predominantly black and brown folks. So there are like complicated, meaningful narratives around identity and race and ethnicity mm-hmm. that are helpful to them. But it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about because, you know, we are in the United States and yes. we live in an extremely white supremacist and colorist society. Yes. And that's something that I will continually think about. And so we talk about our family as we say, listen, the way that mama experiences the world, the way that, mm-hmm. you know, each of our kids experience the world, the way I experience the world, very different. 
Mm-hmm. Very different. <laughs> some things might be similar and some things may be right. different. Right. You know what I mean? But, no, but that's absolutely. another thing to think – another way to think about this paradigm of, of, of colorism and to say, you know, like what are the things we can learn from that and be present with as we all, as we all grow? You know, so yeah, it's some, it's something that that I I think about constantly, and it's one among many extremely high stakes tightrope walks of being <laughs> of being a parent. You know, sure. that no, o- only seems to deepen in complexity as the kids grow older. Right, I can imagine. I know they're fairly young, but back in twenty twenty, when the uh, George Floyd situation happened, did you have to have a discussion regarding that? Because that was something that was obviously international. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we we had talked we had talked about racialized police violence, mm-hmm. white supremacy, racism, systems and structures in society being racist before George Floyd. I think what was really powerful and exciting about that moment for us was um, my daughter. Our daughter was a catalyst who asked us to organize a march in our quiet residential neighborhood. And we organized, we actually organized several marches, but this first one that we did, and it was a few days after George Floyd was murdered, we had more than 500 people come to this march. And it, this is something that we organized like on three days notice. Wow. And just like kind of word of mouth, whatever else. Obviously, we didn't get a permit, just 500 people. Just guns blazing. Just to have like our, our daughter like and our, and our son with us holding these signs, chanting Black Lives Matter and no justice, mm-hmm. no peace. And just them, you know, I, and I told them, you know, I told them, I said, listen, I said, we live in Atlanta, Georgia. I would mm-hmm. argue that Atlanta was the epicenter of the civil rights movement. Hmm. You know what I mean? Okay. This is, this was the, this was the center point from which all the organizing for the civil rights movement rippled out from, you know what I mean? Like, you know, one of, one of our senators was, was the pastor at, you know, at, at Ebenezer Baptist Church where, where Dr. King used to preach. You know what I mean? Oh, like, really? This is, we're in that town. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? I told, you know, our daughter and, we, and our son couldn't understand it as much at that time because he was so young. But I said, I said, you know, this is a legacy that you're carrying with you for your grandchildren. Wow. I say, you know, when you're 100 years old, you're going to tell your great grandchildren that when you were five years old, you were marching after they killed George Floyd. Hmm. That's a legacy that you've already left and you're five years old. Wow. You know what I mean? And I said, you know, I said, you, you, you did that. I said, and what that, what that proves is that proves how powerful you are, even though you are five, hmm. you helped do this. And I, I looked around, I showed her 500 people. I said, you helped do this. You're five years old. You did this. Think about the possibility and the power that you carry every day of your life. Wow. That's yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. And I think that that's dope that you had um, the bandwidth to basically help her to carry that out. You know what I'm saying? People are affected differently, right? Some people just cowered, some people marched, some people, you know, they did a number of things. Some, um, some people tried to avoid it. Um, I don't see how you could, but they try to, you know, sweep it under the rug or what have you. But I think when you have a young person that can look at that and take up the torch and say like, I want to make a difference. I don't want to see this happen. And like you said, she being five years old, like that's huge because now when she's 15 or when she's 25, she can, like you said, you told her this is something she did. So now she knows if there's every injustice, I can stand against it. I can make a difference. And I think that's what's great about, you know, even raising children in this type of generation where we, you know, things happen. We know that racism is is a construct that's been around for so, so many years. And, you know, like you say, you talk about marching, you know, and King and what he did during the civil rights movement. 
I mean, I can't imagine living during that time and being involved with that type of, you know what I'm saying? Just to just blatant disregard for humanity. But I think the fact that, you know, like you said, you can raise up somebody that is able to take that, understand that this is wrong. I need to do something about it and not have any problems with it and not have any fear about doing that. That is something that speaks volumes. And I think you should definitely be proud of yourself for that. Yeah, I mean, I, thank you. I, but well, I mean, I'll, I'll say one thing that I that I talk to, you know, to my kids all the time about just about just the lineage that they're a part of and the responsibility mm-hmm. and the power of that. My mother and father-in-law, you know, my daughter's grandparents, you know, I was saying, listen, they, they, they survived being black in the South during segregation. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my mother-in-law met Dr. King when she was at Talladega and went to a training session for active resistance and civil disobedience. Wow. You know what I mean? And she tells stories about that. Um, she'd take the Greyhound bus from, you know, from Tampa to, to Alabama, mm-hmm. you know, in 1961. You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I think trying to, and, and, but, but I think the thing about it too that I was telling my, my daughter is, you know, and she's ever, better able to understand because she's, she's older, but it's just like, mm-hmm. this, this wasn't long ago. Mm. Like, we just had dinner with a person who experienced this as an adult. That's how recently this was. Recent. Yeah. People remember, people forget that. People forget that. Carlos, they forget that. They forget how recent this is. This was. I'm like, she. She was taking that Greyhound bus and she was an adult. Bro. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, that, that I, like I was, I was an American history major in college and I don't care how many times I like know that it still blows my mind. Yeah. It's wild. It's, it's really wild. I think you're doing a great job and just raising that awareness, you know, amongst your kids. And I think that's something that I hope that, you know, this is obviously is a space for fathers of color. So I hope that all the parents are doing that that are of color because it's so widely important. I don't care if you're on the West Coast, the East Coast, down South, because it's everywhere. You know, we, we experience racism yeah. is everywhere. And it's so important for our children to be aware at all costs. When you step back and, and you look at some of the challenges, obviously, you know, having to navigate with scheduling, you know, because you're a full-time artist, what are some of the other challenges that you face, you know, kind of being a, a father and, and a new father rather, and, and what you're doing with your children? I'll tell you about one one challenge of mine that that's been a big, you know, I think catalyst and a seed for for growth. That's also just like a, a confession of like ways that I've constantly failed as a father that I'm like growing through. Hmm. It's funny because I think you know, like for those of us at different points who may have had models of parenting, whether it was a, a father, a mother, whatever, who hmm. we think maybe were not a good model for us in certain ways. Hmm. Um, which I think almost every person I know can say yes to this, <laughs> um, or they didn't have a parent who was there or whatever else. We assume, okay, cool. Let me just do the opposite of what they did to get it right. <laughs> <laughs> Complete opposite. And, and That's going to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and wouldn't that be so simple if that was the way to solve that inadequate model or whatever else? And that's something that I've had to learn a lot of times. Like, I think there were ways like my, my father was, was not present within certain things that I promised myself I would be extremely invested in there. You know what mm. I mean? There, there are things that I'm really happy about, right? Like yes. whether it's like, you know, do, doing my daughter's hair or like bathing the kids and just like involved in like, there's, there's no role that I'm not a part of. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, for anybody who's partnered with a parent who, who has a partner who's a parent that's uh, breastfeeding or gives birth to a child, and if their partner is a uterus, like your dreams of equity are like done. <laughs> because <laughs> when that baby's first born, if, if 
they're able to and wish to breastfeed the kid, like, you know, 95% of the activity, intensity, nourishment, everything is coming from the person who's breastfeeding. Right. And, and that was very hard for me. That was very, very hard for me. But, mm. but the way that I try to counterbalance that was I was like, cool. I was like, I'm diaper man. Every diaper is me. Every single one. And, but, but again, that doesn't balance the scales. Do you know what I'm saying? Sure. Like, sure. Um, you know, and, and so I think there were, there were, there are ways that I, I, I think I deliberately tried to try to counteract things that I saw my dad do that I thought were not, could have been done better. But one thing that I notice about myself is it's harder for me sometimes to like step back and leave that space. Cause I, I want to be so hands-on. Like I want to play with my kids and I want to like constantly like be involved in ways where like, I've, I, and this is my, my, my wife has helped me with this and challenged me on this. And she's totally right. It's like, listen, just cause your dad didn't do that. It doesn't mean that you need to be that intensely invested in so many of these moments. They, for them to build their own agency and their own sovereignty, you got to step back. You got to train them and help them to do all these things themselves. And that's why I'm doing much better now, but, but especially mm. when they're smaller and it's hard that pivot because yeah, you know, when they're when they're first born, like they can't do anything. Like, it's literally just like a blob of like sweaty blob <laughs> of a kid who like sounds like a cat meowing in the first few days, you know. And and all they do is just like poop and and cry and sleep and right. kind of just like look, you know, wander their eyes around, barely yeah. able to see you know more than a foot in front of them, right? You know, like there's a point like as they build different things they can do. It's really important to to allow them to explore their agency in mm-hmm. healthy ways, right? You know. Um, Absolutely, and that's something that I think I've had trouble with at times because I think there are ways that my dad like wasn't involved on certain things. Like I told you, of course, he played with us; he was present with us. But then, mm-hmm. in some of the like more mundane tasks of living, the assumption was my mom does that, uh, and I was gotcha. and I was really and I think I was really you know in my own mind I was I'm gonna be really adamant about like I am I show up even when it's not sexy. I show up even mm-hmm. when it's not about you know having fun like i'm gonna mm-hmm. i'm gonna be in 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 the trenches in the mundane moments where I, what i had to learn was like neither of us need to be in the like with the kid let them do as much as they can do because right. that's really really important for their development and their self-identity and their self-worth and that also is doing what is the fear and also the hope of every parent which is you're trying to build you're, you're trying to raise self-directed healthy happy adult which, who, who someday will leave you. <laughs> you know, like, that's the goal. That's the goal. The goal is to have your kid less and less rely on you to do anything. Right. And that's hard for a lot of parents for a sure. lot of reasons, but that's the whole point. And so that's something that I'm, I'm learning more and more each day right. to be, to be better with. That's I've never heard it said like that, but that's exactly what you're doing. <laughs> like you're literally raising someone to leave you. <laughs> oh, that's funny. The last question I have, Carlos, and this has been great, um, as I knew it yeah, was going yeah, to be, because yeah. you're amazing. But um, what advice would you give, you know, someone that is going to be a parent, or maybe they want to be one soon? What advice would you have for them, you know, that you've experienced so far that you could pass down? One is take nothing personally. Mm. It never is. Take none of it personally. If your kid says, "I hate you," you're a bad parent. I hate this meal. I never want to see you again. Yeah, they don't mean any of that. They're just. They're just <laughs> They're just seeking, you know, agency or attention in, in mm-hmm. un, unhealthy ways. But it's not, it's not about you. They're just they're just they're just trying to push your buttons. You know, like don't take anything personally because it never is. And I think that's a reminder to know that like your kid will go through these developmental s- cycles where they're they're really really 
fighting for their for their independence and their agency. And in those moments, you know, the why is really important. Like, what is this? What is this kid really calling out for? And what do they mm-hmm. need? Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what they don't need is for you to react. Mm-hmm. What they don't need is for you to have a knee jerk reaction, which as a human, you're going to it sometimes unless right. you're like, I don't know, the Dalai Lama, but like, <laughs> you know, I think, and I think I've gotten, I try to get better with it. It's just like, no reaction is always better than a negative reaction. And if there are moments where you just like walk away, if as long as they're in a safe place or mm. just say, you know, listen, you, you're not allowed to talk to Poppy like that. So I'm going to walk away when you're ready to talk. Mm. I'll talk, you know, right. um, take nothing person. That's really important. I see so many parents and, you know, it, it can be hard at times to be a parent and obviously not take, take it personally but you know it's like kids are saying or doing whatever and parents are so aggrieved by it i'm like mm-hmm. this is not about you this is like a three-year-old just wanting to like pretend to tie their shoes for 10 seconds just let them do it you know? yeah. like, <laughs> they just they just want to feel significant for a moment you know like right. and then the second piece of advice this is like a probably a cliche i don't even know who to attribute this to i've heard it so many times from so many different people but it's you know kids copy what you do not what you say hmm. so be aware of what you're doing right Kids rarely take that seriously what you say, but they always are watching what you are doing. So be mindful of what you're doing. Yes, that is really good. And that is very true. And ladies and gentlemen, Carlos Andres Gomez. I appreciate you, man. Those are some good, good nuggets um, there. Uh, Give you the, the... Spoken word clapping. I would give you the after you, after you kill peace. It. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you coming in three minutes and nine seconds. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I love it. Was it cool? Oh, but <laughs> she, she catches his breath. Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, that was really good, man. I want to you to be able to plug anything that you may have upcoming or any shows or. Uh, I know sure. you're an author, so maybe um, purchasing your book where they can find that all of yeah. that good stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm really easy to find if you want to connect with me. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. My website's carloslive.com. Carlos, like the really easy to spell Spanish name, even if you're as bad of a speller as I am. <laughs> Live, what Lem and I were doing right here in real time um, that you're listening to recorded now. So carloslive.com um, on Instagram and, and Twitter. I'm at carlosaglive. I recently put out my debut full-length poetry collection, Fractures, and you can find all the info for that um, on my website or on social media. But yeah, I just want to say thank you so much again, Lem. It's been really wonderful to, to talk with you. And I really admire what you're doing with this podcast. I think it's really important and really beautiful. Word, man. I, th- I appreciate you. I appreciate you. I'll make sure um, I'll send you that $20 um, for saying that. <laughs> for saying that. But no, man, I, I do appreciate it. I do appreciate it. Um, and I want to thank everyone so much for tuning in. Oh, before I let everyone go, we do have sponsors for this episode. I have to give a shout out to our sponsors. We have Miss Pam Howell. She's one of my favorite people on earth. I have Sonia Foljam. She's one of the biggest fans of the show and a good friend of mine, Maurice Robertson. Um, and he's also a father. So um, those are the three sponsors of this um, podcast. We always appreciate them because they help us to keep going. And I want to thank everyone so much for tuning in. Again, this is Lynn Gonzalez, a.k.a. Saint. And until we speak again, God bless and take care. Colors of Fatherhood is produced by Josh Rodriguez and St. Lee Productions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share with all your family and friends. Please remember to follow us on social media at Stay on the Mic and at Colors of Fatherhood. And for all your booking needs, please visit www.stayonthemic.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next episode.